Hello everyone and welcome back to Sci Section. I'm Halima, your journalist for this week, and today we are delighted to have Dr. Simon Clark. Simon is an atmospheric physicist and content creator on YouTube, originally providing insight on how to apply to Oxbridge, and now he discusses science, research, books, amongst a bunch of other things. Thank you so much, Simon, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So I guess to begin, so our viewers can get a little bit of an understanding of who we, you are, we have a couple of rapid fire questions for you, you could say. So firstly, what is your favorite planet? Oh, oh, give me an easy one to start with, why don't you? Um, Earth. Earth is the only habitable planet. It's incredible. Um, it's The more we learn about the universe, the more we realize we're very lucky to have the planet the way that it is. So I'm as boring as it is, I'm an Earth scientist. I'm going to say Earth. Okay, I guess related back to Earth, what is the weirdest climate-denying claim that you've ever heard? The weirdest. Oh, um... That's another interesting one. I think probably that Antarctica is a myth and that it's like the UN has a Navy patrolling the Southern Oceans that's constantly stopping anybody from trying to reach quote unquote Antarctica. Quite why that the UN would do this. So what benefit it would have? I don't know, but that's probably the strangest one. Yeah, that definitely is a little bit strange. So you're a scientist. Who is your biggest inspiration as a scientist? Oh, probably James Clerk Maxwell. Um, I feel like he's the physicist physicist. Um, and I mean, that was my training. I did a master's in, in physics and um, everybody always looks up to Einstein and to people like Feynman. But to me, Maxwell did nothing short of magic. He combined all the disparate ob observations about electricity and magnetism into just four laws. And apparently he was a top notch bloke at the same time. Apparently he was really nice. He wrote poetry. He owned a dog. He played the guitar. He's that example of you can do amazing, world-changing science and also be nice about it, which I feel like you often lose in a lot of famous scientists. That's very, very true. So if you could go back in time and meet one scientist, do you think it would be Maxwell or somebody else? See, that's the interesting thing, um, because when you going back in time, there's the angle of you can pick their brains about how they look at the world, but also who do I think would be most excited to be brought up to speed? Like if I could tell them all these things that are possible. Um, if I, I think on that angle, it would be Archimedes. Archimedes was this in incredible polymath. And I, I would have so much delight in basically sitting down with him and offloading a physics degree to him and sort of explaining everything from Newton onwards. I think that'd be really, really cool. I definitely would be. So you wouldn't necessarily want to go back and meet Maxwell, but just kind of appreciate him from the future. I think there's a certain angle of you shouldn't meet your heroes. I feel, mm -hmm. I, feel like I could meet him. And it would be, I'd, I'd be so worried about getting tongue tied or just looking like an idiot. Because there are so many physicists in history like Newton or Maxwell or Landau or, or Dirac that you'd meet. And I know that I would feel incredibly stupid by comparison. Whereas at least with Archimedes, like I have the benefit of a few millennia of, you know, improved science and I can rest on that and not feel quite so inadequate. <laughs> That's definitely true, for sure. Maybe if we get the chance to time travel, we could go see Archimedes together because that would be cool. And lastly, I think mm -hmm. on your YouTube channel, you talk a lot about books and different books that you like. So what is your all-time favorite book? One that you would read over and over again and recommend to like anybody on the street? You really are picking easy questions, aren't you? Um, <laughs> if I had to pick one, it would probably be My Family and Other Animals by Gerald Durrell. Uh, it's always in my top three. I always say my top three are that, uh, Brave New World and Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. And I think 
Um, the, the other two are a little bit more difficult. They're not for everyone. Whereas I think my family, my family and other animals is, has something for everyone. It's just a delightful story about somebody falling in love with the natural world and lots of interpersonal uh, friction and comedy. And I, I just, it's delightful. I'll definitely have to search that up on books soon and read it because I'm definitely a bookworm as well. So now I guess segueing more into you and the work that you do, your research and all of that, where did your bloom for physics and physics education really begin? So when I was a kid, I originally wanted to be a movie director. Uh, that was the earliest dream I remember having. So funnily enough, I've sort of come full circle, really. Um, and then that became astronaut because I was, uh, I, I think I all children are just fascinated by space, the immensity of it. There's a certain wonder to it. And um, learning that there are definite rules that can describe how something the size of a planet will move, and those being exactly the same rules that describe how apples fall to Earth, or more frequently, I fall to Earth, uh, that was amazing to me. And I, I think uh, there, are, there are so few people in the world that could, could, could sort of come to that realization and not want to study physics. So it's definitely, definitely from quite a young age, being interested in space was a huge thing. And then when I was in school, in high school in the UK, we split science between maths, physics, and, and sorry, physics, chemistry, and biology. And um, when that happened at about age 13, I just realized that all the cool stuff was in physics. And so that was the subject that I wanted to study. Mm -hmm. And so now a lot of your work is related to atmospheric physics, which I think I don't know too much about it, but Earth and weather is a lot of what it's about. Could you give us a little bit of a rundown of your PhD work and why you were attracted to atmospheric physics compared to other kind of subfields? So the, the why I became attracted to it was a moment in my third year of my undergraduate when we were doing fluid mechanics. There was this fascinating module on, uh, I think it was called fluids, flows and complexity. So looking at the equations that govern how fluids move, but also stuff like chaos, strange attractors, that, that sort of thing. And um, there was just a moment when I was doing a problem sheet when uh, you were calculating the uh, velocity in a fluid between two plates and one of them was being heated. And I just realized that everything in physics up until that point, you're dealing with point particles you're dealing with these abstractions of you know like a billiard ball and a smooth infinitely smooth infinite uh, billiards table and that never really happens whereas with the fluid example you're it's not discretized it's continuous you're calculating the flow and the temperature um throughout the entire fluid and that to me was incredible that you could do that with just a couple of equations and specifically there was an extension to the question that we were told not to do and i thought I, I really want to try this. I want to try, you know, let's vary the temperature and see what happens add a time dependence to the solution. And being able to do that, it was that wonderful feeling of, I suppose, power. It was that feeling of, I can describe this stuff. I can work out what this stuff will do in the future using these simple equations. Um, and from that moment on, I knew that was what I wanted to do. It was that combination of the natural world and physics, which are sort of two things that I've always been incredibly interested in. One comes from uh, my family and other animals. And yeah, it was the Venn diagram of those two. And then without getting too boring, my thesis uh, was on um, stratospheric dynamics. Well, specifically, it was on uh, stratosphere-troposphere coupling. So that uh, means looking at how two layers in the atmosphere, because the atmosphere, like uh, ogres, like onions, has layers, and um, they communicate with each other. They behave in slightly different ways. So uh, I, in my thesis, was looking at how the stratosphere, which is the, the middle layer, if you like, of the kind of 
the true bit of the atmosphere, interacts with our layer, the troposphere, and specifically looking at uh, the aftermath of these events called sudden stratospheric warmings, um, which uh, became famous a couple of years ago because uh, the polar vortex broke apart and there was a huge cold snap over most of North America. That was caused by the polar vortex and there was a lot of terrible science reporting about the, the name and it gets very confusing. But yeah, basically I was studying the polar vortex and the maths of how it affects the surface. I think for something as complex as that, as you explained it really, really easily, and I, I think I really grasped what you were trying to gain with that. W with that application of your thesis, where is that information or that kind of um, academic studying applied to in the real world? How would you take your thesis and the research that you've created from that and then contribute to um, the science community or the tech community or what have you? So the main thing that that's useful for is uh, weather prediction. And um, mm -hmm. in particular, um, stratos the stratosphere is interesting for a whole variety of reasons. I could write a whole book on it. Um, but uh, specifically when it comes to weather forecasting, it varies on much longer time scales. So on the surface, we don't know what happens more than a, maybe a week or two weeks in advance. Whereas in the stratosphere, because it varies much more slowly, you know what's going to happen. And if you know that there is going to be a sudden warming event, knowing how that information is communicated to the surface is uh, valuable because it allows you to predict the surface weather further in the future than you would be able to just using surface data. So um, specifically in my thesis, we found that the interaction between the two layers was non-linear. It's not enough to just consider the two influences on the uh, stratosphere and troposphere and vice versa. Uh, in isolation, you have to consider them together. Um, and that's the kind of thing which can go into, for example, weather forecasting models, um, making sure that you have for example, a well-defined stratosphere with a high resolution, um, making sure that you have a lateral resolution that's sufficient to capture the, the eddy fluxes. Sorry, I'm getting way too technical. But basically, yes, you can, apply the, you can apply the ideas from that to weather forecasting and use that to make better forecasts, particularly in the winter season when these big events, these sudden stratospheric warmings happen. Mm -hmm. I don't think you were necessarily able to kind of jump to the stratosphere and do this kind of research. So how exactly does physics research work? I know that like with biology, you're, I don't know, you're dissecting things in chemistry, you're in the lab. So with physics, how exactly are you able to come to these conclusions? So I hoped that in my PhD, I'd be able to revisit the polar stratosphere because specifically we're looking over the poles and I didn't get mm -hmm. to leave any, uh, well, actually, no, I went to, I did go to San Francisco for a conference, but I, I didn't get to go anywhere near as exciting as the North Pole. Uh, basically, you do it entirely in computers. Uh, so you, you derive the maths of what you're doing on pen and paper, and we were able to derive some results that uh, were kind of cool, I think, quite elegant, um, using that method. And then effectively, the actual science is testing that. So you have your hypothesis, this equation that you've derived, and then you test it using uh, a computer. It's not actually a computer model. It's using the uh, sort of observations that we have using satellites and uh, basically manipulating those results in such a way that you can check if your result is uh, verified by that data. So uh, I'd say that my PhD was probably about 10 to 15 percent pen and paper manipulating equations and about 85 to 90 percent uh, programming and failing to program. So is physics research and technology kind of go hand in hand? with the work that you do? Absolutely, yeah. Um, and I don't think that's particularly, I mean, perhaps it is particularly true for uh, atmospheric physics, but also definitely true for things like uh, astrophysics. Um, there are certainly aspects of science which are very experimental. And I have friends who did atmospheric physics who, for example, were investigating the monsoon over India, and they got to fly planes through uh, you know, rainstorms with measuring equipment that they built and designed. 
So there is that, that practical aspect to it, um, and in which case that's the link between science and engineering. But uh, certainly when it comes to my neck of the woods and would definitely be the case quite broadly, uh, technology and in particular computer science has a real link with, with modern physics. That's very, very interesting. And I guess the subject of physics, I find, is kind of the bane of existence for a lot of students. Why do you think that <laughs> is you are able to be, I guess, so different from that? Um, I think people find it so frustrating because it is so mathematical. And um, mm -hmm. I actually think that my personal motto when it comes to maths is it's only hard until you realize it's not. Um, mm -hmm. There's a lot of cultural factors that go into and social factors that go into people thinking that maths isn't for them and the, they are unwilling to be good at it. Basically, it's not that they are incapable of being good at it, they're almost unwilling to. And as long as they have that mm -hmm. attitude about maths, they will have that attitude about physics because um, physics is the, uh, the grammar of the universe, whereas maths is the vocabulary, it's the language. Um, and so I think it is that uh, a failing in cer certainly in the UK uh, of our education system to turn people onto maths and to make them realize they can do it. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, that, 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 that translates across to, to physics. So it's actually, it's a delightful subject. You just have to, to sort of look past those misgivings you may have about uh, algebra and equations and calculus and realize that if you're just pig headed enough like me, because I'm not particularly bright, I just, I just don't give up really. Uh, and so I just kept going with the maths until it eventually clicked. And it, it does happen. I'm, I'm proof that it can happen, even to people that aren't especially bright. I don't think that's true. You're definitely um, very, very intelligent with the work that you do and um, also being able to take this knowledge that you have and make it understandable for people on YouTube. So could you talk to us a little bit about starting content on YouTube and how you kind of segued from talking to people about education and Oxbridge to now with um, more of your research kind of thing in science? So that, that's an interesting one because um, when I started out, as you say, I was doing content about Oxbridge and the key thing that I was trying to get across was it was experiential. It was to do with my lived experience with it. The goal being that it was a boots on the ground perspective. It's like, this is what my life is like. And, um, you know, so I am just a normal kid and my parents didn't go to university or anything like that. And yet I'm here. It's the, the, the point being, you're seeing the experience through my eyes and you can sort of feel connected to it and think oh well if he can do it I can do it and when you make content like that that is inherently based on your personal experience um, it changes as you change in life and so when I started doing my master's um, at Oxford I, I did a video uh, on sort of what my research was about and I found that um, kind of rewarding to do but also it was representative this was the stuff I was doing with my time um, and then when I started the PhD I started making content about what it was like to do a PhD and that necessarily started being about the science I was doing and I found that when I was talking about my research I actually needed to fill in some groundwork um, and sort of made some videos with some more basics on the subject and then I kind of just got the bug for doing that so it went from being this this thing of this is what my experience is like on a day-to-day -day basis to uh, well you know you're interested in this thing and I'm interested in this thing so here's a cool thing I did I, I think the first true science kind of standalone thing I did was about um, time dilation and this very simple clock that um, Feynman came up with so sort of you could derive it basically just using Pythagoras's theorem uh, which is you know one of the central results of special relativity just using Pythagoras which I was like oh this is a neat thing I'll make that and um, you know people seem to like it and so I just sort of got the bug really I just I just kind of started making more and more videos that were about uh, less about me and more about the science and then by the time I graduated I, I had a large enough audience that I definitely wasn't guaranteed success by any means but I figured I would regret not 
trying to do it as a career because I enjoyed it so much. And um, fortunately, I uh, people kept watching the stuff I make. And um, yeah, but here we are now. Have you found that a lot of your audience is kind of people interested in physics or is it all over the place? It's sort of all over the place because my earlier content was not so much about physics. And there are certainly loads of people that carried, you know, have carried on watching my stuff for reasons best known to themselves. And so they could have been drawn in by me talking about being a student or me talking about being a musician or talking about Warhammer because I've done several videos about that now. Um, and, you know, so they, they, their interests are all over the place. It also depends, though, on the kind of content that I'm trying to make because there, there's this concept called science capital where you mm -hmm. are effectively the trying to reach the audience of a particular science capital, meaning um, how engaged they feel with science, how much skin in the game they have in, in the sort of the scientific sphere. And there's a lot to be said for engaging with people with a high science capital, in which case the audience is already interested in science. They just want to know about a particular thing. Um, but there's also a lot to be said, I think, for people with a low science capital. Those are the people that you could arguably make the biggest difference to by getting them interested in science um, via uh, something else they're interested in. So uh, one of the most popular videos I did was on the planets in Star Wars, um, which ones could really exist. And that's really a video about, this is sort of the basics of planetary science. This is how we think about, you know, modeling planets. But if I'd made the video called that, nobody would have watched it. It would have been the high science capital audience. But by making it about mm -hmm. Star Wars, you bring these people in with huge range of interests, but unified by that interest in Star Wars. Um, and I've done that a couple of times now. Um, and so the sort of the, the, the regular audience now is definitely trending towards being more science literate and higher science capital. But I think you fail as a science communicator if you exclusively target those people. You've got to start bringing more people in. And the way of doing that is by making stuff that's not explicitly about science. Mm -hmm. And I think this question is kind of loaded, but why do you think it's important for every people to be interested in science and to want to know more about science when not, they're not necessarily in those fields? What's the importance behind it? So I think people's lives are improved by education more than anything else. And um, education is all about making the most of people's potential. Um, and if you have a training in maths or in science, you have the ability to uh, analyze situations with a more analytical, quantitative um, uh, viewpoint than if you have never studied science or never studied maths. So I think that you can make the argument that that learning how science works, not actually the sort of scientific knowledge per se, but how the subject works is a valuable addition to someone's life because it improves how they go about their life. I, you could also say though, that there is value in teaching people the scientific facts because that those facts will inform people's decisions. So particularly mm. when it comes to something like global warming, um, I have an interest, a vested interest in making sure people know the facts about climate change because if they do they will vote in uh, a way that will hopefully do something about the problem if they don't know anything about the problem they can't be expected to vote in a way that will fix it so you know society benefits from people who, th who think in, a, in an analytical way even if they don't go on to go to, to do science it's not for everybody we don't need an entire planet of scientists but i think we do need is a people a planet of people who can think like scientists when they're required to and have the knowledge uh, required to engage with and overcome problems that we face in the world and that's something that we are definitely still lacking. And I think it's definitely something that we need to keep doing is improving people's scientific, if not education, their scientific literacy, their ability to look at facts, disseminate them, draw their own conclusions using a scientific method.
especially relating to climate change, there's such an importance that with upcoming U.S. election, amongst other things. So keeping informed on science is definitely essential. On that note, thank you so much, Simon, for joining us today. Where can our um, listeners kind of find you? So I'm on YouTube at uh, Simon Clark, if you just search for me. Uh, and then I'm also on uh, Instagram and Twitter as uh, Simon Ox Fizz. All right. Thank you so much, Simon, for joining us today. It was such a pleasure to have you.